The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Can a president be arrested for murder? Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, October 24th, 2019. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. This week, we got the smoking gun in the most credible and damning testimony yet in the Trump impeachment. And we heard just yesterday from the president's lawyers that he really could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and get away with it, as he claimed in the 2016 campaign. All that, of course, will be covered here today. But first, on a personal note, I want to thank you all for your patience during my week's absence and for the overwhelming outpouring of love and support while I focused on a temporary health crisis for my wife that is now over. All is well again in our little world, even if our nation is in rough and uncharted waters. Trump's reference to shooting someone and getting away with it was a braggadocious way to illustrate what he believed was his level of popularity in the 2016 campaign. But yesterday, his lawyers actually argued in court that they believe that to be legally, literally true. In a federal appeals court where Trump's lawyers are fighting efforts by New York state prosecutors to get hold of his secreted tax returns, the president's defense team argued that the president cannot be investigated, much less prosecuted. So Trump's shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue comment came up as a hypothetical in court yesterday. That's when Trump's lawyers argued that even local police would have to stand aside and allow the president to shoot whomever he wishes so the president would not be distracted from his presidential duties. Nothing could be done? That's your position? asked the skeptical judge. That is correct, replied a Trump lawyer. Trump's lawyers also seem to be saying that impeachment would be the nation's only recourse should a president start shooting people. They also admitted he could be arrested after he leaves office, but not a moment before, not even for murder. The judge who has yet to rule on the case told lawyers for both sides, this case seems bound for the Supreme Court. This is the America in which we now live. This is not the America we read about in school. This is not the America in which we grew up. Figuratively speaking, this is not America. Now that we've left our Kurdish allies to die or go homeless, now that we've unleashed ISIS, the rest of the world barely recognizes the U.S. anymore. Americans barely recognize the U.S. anymore. Our soldiers and veterans also feel lost, from the highest-ranking generals to the lowliest grunts, many of them ashamed and angry at their president. We now live in a country that abandons those who fought for us and alongside us, a place where the president abuses the constitutional authority of his office to break the law by enlisting foreign help against a domestic political rival. Here on the Upside Down, the president of the United States of America now embraces dictators and get smirks and dirty looks from the leaders of the countries that had been our oldest and dearest friends. We live in a country led by a man who values deals over decency, or at least they seem like deals to him. We are now a country that turns its back on Hong Kong protesters who wave our flag and sing our national anthem in favor of the Chinese government that seeks to crush those protesters because trade. The U.S. is now a place where supporters of the president can rent space at one of his resorts to raise money for his campaign and show a video in which said president shoots, stabs, strangles, and beats his political enemies with the deadliest violence aimed at our constitutionally protected free press. A country where the mass murderer in that clip is cheered as a hero despite an epidemic of real mass killings in this country. 
a country where families fleeing violence and poverty are separated or turned away and their children locked in cages and internment camps. We live in a country where the president does not condemn this kind of meanness, but instead declares his absolute right to do anything he wants without fear of the laws he swore to uphold. And so far, he's mostly gotten away with it. It's a place where some elected leaders struggle with impeaching a president, the likes of which we have never seen, while other elected leaders defend him or just look away. This is not America. But this is still America. This is still the place where our soldiers are allowed to speak their shame and where career professionals step out of their quiet jobs to expose the crimes of the president. This past week may have been the most insane week of the Trump presidency, and that's saying something. That week began last Thursday when his chief of staff proudly admitted the very thing Trump had been denying, that there was a quid pro quo, a this for that with Ukraine. Proudly admitted it and told reporters, that's why we held up the money. We do that all the time with foreign policy, adding, get over it. Acting chief of staff Mick Mulvaney later tried unsuccessfully to deny he'd said these things despite the recordings of him saying them. Ukraine would get the money it was supposed to get anyway, but only if it would publicly announce an investigation of Joe Biden and the Democratic server that Trump wrongly believes is hidden somewhere in Ukraine based on a conspiracy theory drummed up by an angry and disgraced former Ukrainian prosecutor. Trump, for whatever reasons, is out to prove that Russia did not interfere with the 2016 election for him. Ukraine interfered on behalf of Hillary, he believes, or says he believes. He wants us to believe that despite all the agreement of all of our intelligence agencies that it was Russia for Trump, Russia is actually innocent of wrongdoing. He wants us to believe that Russia is perfectly innocent for any possible combination of reasons that we have yet to crystallize. He wants us to believe that he is innocent. And while Democrats celebrated the confirmation of a quid pro quo, and while Republicans denied it only to be embarrassed by the chief of staff's proud confession of a quid pro quo, it never really mattered whether it was a this for that. What matters is that the sitting president asked the foreign country to help defeat his domestic political rival, an act that has Alexander Hamilton spinning in his grave. But quo or no quo, Trump violated the law and the Constitution brazenly by enlisting domestic political help from a foreign government. Founding Father Alexander Hamilton made sure we had a remedy for this exact kind of corruption. Last Thursday was not only the day that Trump's acting chief of staff proudly admitted to a quid pro quo with Ukraine, it was the day he announced that next year's G7 summit would be held not at the taxpayer-funded presidential retreat at Camp David, Maryland, but at Trump's aging Doral Golf Resort in Florida. Mulvaney told reporters the president had personally intervened to award this multi-million dollar summit to his place, the one with 500 health violations and a settled lawsuit over bedbugs. The summit would be in southern Florida in June, when the heat and humidity are as unwelcoming as northern Minnesota in February. But most of all, it was Trump's latest apparent violation of the Emoluments Clause of the U.S. Constitution, which says no federal official may accept fees from any foreign government or the U.S. government, and each government attending the G7 would need at least 20 rooms. The Doral Resort is financially underwater on a $125 million personal loan to Donald Trump 
Business there has been slow, and June, with the heat and humidity of southern Florida, is the slow season. Mick Mulvaney, in one of his weekend interviews to try to walk back his quid pro quo confession, said the president still thinks of himself as being in the hospitality business. On taking office, Trump never divested himself from his businesses. He may consider the presidency a second job. And with his decision to hold the Group of Seven gathering at his place, foreign money would be going directly into the president's pocket. There is plenty of parking at Doral, explained Trump as he claimed that there had been a nationwide search for the best spot for the G7 and that Doral was the hands-down winner. It's not about me, he claimed. It's about getting the right location. Yeah, southern Florida in June with a chance of bedbugs. This shady and unconstitutional decision to host the G7 at one of his own resorts could not stand. And it didn't. Sure, Democrats howled about this emolument times seven, but so did Republicans. It was pressure from moderate Republicans who will vote on impeachment that persuaded Trump to reverse his decision. Trump was told Republican lawmakers are having a hard time trying to defend him and that they'd grown tired of it. In fact, there is no defense for Trump's behavior, so Republicans are left with nothing to attack but the investigation of that behavior, complaining that it's secretive, which it also was at this point in Clinton's impeachment, and that Republicans aren't allowed to call defense witnesses, although they will in the Senate trial. On Saturday night, Trump retreated, saying the Group of Seven summit would not be held at his place after all, probably Camp David now, after he disparaged the U.S. presidential retreat in the past, calling it very rustic. The White House refused to specify any other locations it had considered, and when it came time to replace Doral, there was no second choice in line. They simply turned back to very rustic Camp David. But for a hot minute, Trump had a plan to line his pockets with money from foreign leaders. Alexander Hamilton made sure we had a remedy for exactly this kind of corruption. Impeachment that starts as an investigation by the House, which serves as a grand jury, behind closed doors initially, just like a grand jury. It's up to the House to decide whether to indict or, in this context, impeach. And although Speaker Nancy Pelosi says she's not quite ready to take a full House vote on impeaching Donald Trump, there had been universal agreement that it would happen before Thanksgiving. That estimate is now being pushed back to by the end of the year, and it's still just an estimate. Why the delay? Because despite Speaker Pelosi's desire to keep this simple, it is in fact complicated. Each witness has opened new leads for House investigators to follow and new documents to obtain, and some witnesses have been rescheduled for later dates as they shop for lawyers and because of memorial services for Elijah Cummings. More about his passing later in this report. And while Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had previously indicated he'd make it a quick vote, a vote to dismiss the House charges, he now says an impeachment trial in the Senate is inevitable. And still to come, the dramatic televised public hearings, complete with star witnesses. When it was thought that the House impeachment would be done by Thanksgiving, McConnell predicted the Senate could have a verdict by Christmas. It now appears it will take longer than that. The Senate's impeachment trial will now probably spill into the new year. But with the first presidential primaries in February, it's likely the trial would be over by then. 
A week ago today, it became much, much harder for Republicans to defend their president as more and bigger straws were added to the camel's back. Republican claims that there was no quid pro quo had been shot down by the very men they'd been defending. Republican lawmakers were angry about Trump's abandonment of our Kurdish allies in Syria. Mitch McConnell called it a grave, tragic mistake. It was also the height of hypocrisy in the midst of Trump's efforts to smear Hunter Biden for profiting off his dad's vice presidency, what with Jared and Ivanka in the White House serving a president who uses his office to profit personally. And Republicans in Congress were appalled at the news that Trump had awarded next year's G7 Economic Summit of World Leaders to himself, to his own golf resort in Doral, Florida, a blatant violation of the Constitution's Emoluments Clause and a clearly impeachable offense. Or, as Trump called it Monday, this phony emoluments clause. He's now saying that at least part of the U.S. Constitution is phony. He compared his impeachment to a lynching, despite impeachment being clearly outlined in our Constitution. Now even the Constitution is fake news to Trump. And about the inappropriate use of that racially charged word in a country that recorded over 4,700 lynchings between 1802 and 1968, 3,500 of them on African Americans. It made for a nice distraction for a few hours until we heard about the testimony of William Taylor. I'll have a lot to report about that in a bit. So Republicans endured all of this inside of just a few days, Trump withdrew his G7 plan after two days of bashing by even members of his own party. Maybe he'd gone too far this time. At the very least, even Republicans would now like some answers. And although an impeachment conviction by this Republican Senate is still unlikely at the moment, for at least a few in the Senate where this president will stand trial, this time all of this was just too much. When Lindsey Graham tried to get fellow GOP senators to sign a letter to Pelosi saying they would never convict the president, Lindsey's idea was struck down, partly out of fears it would expose division in the Republican Party. Now Graham says, show me a crime and he'll back impeachment. Mitch McConnell now says he would be open to impeachment if he saw convincing evidence, which he says he has not yet seen. Utah Senator Mitt Romney has been increasingly vocal about the crimes we've all already witnessed. Now it's reported that 20% of Senate Republicans are at least open to the idea of impeaching Donald Trump. So they're telling us there's a chance. Republican senators would be wise to get their holiday shopping done now since there won't be time later. Leader McConnell has warned his fellow Republicans that an impeachment trial means they'll be on the Senate floor every afternoon, six days a week, and that they will not be allowed to speak as so many of them love to do. In fact, they'd be wise to stay mostly quiet in public if they expect to portray themselves as the unbiased jurors they're supposed to be. Instead, Republican politicians will have to sit at their side-by-side desks on the Senate floor and take notes, listening to both sides and submitting only written questions to be filtered by the person presiding over the trial to keep it fair, the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, John Roberts. It will be hard work, and it will be made harder by this. It'll be the job of Senate Republicans to prepare a legal defense for the indefensible. And as it turns out, only Chief Justice Roberts can dismiss the charges, not Mitch McConnell.
Over these past two weeks, the inevitable impeachment closed in in a faster and more furious way, largely because of the rapidly unfolding events. It began with Trump's phone call with the president of Turkey and his immediate subsequent withdrawal of American troops from northern Syria, where the U.S. has been helping the Kurds defeat ISIS and keep Turkey at bay and Russia. The Kurds make up the fourth biggest religion in the Middle East. They have mostly lived in the mountains that separate Turkey, Syria, Iran, Iraq, and Armenia, which makes them strategically important, to say the least. Mostly thanks to the U.S., they are now also extremely well-trained and well-armed fighters, and they have been America's foot soldiers in the crippling of ISIS in Syria. They guarded the jails where ISIS fighters were held prisoners and the camps where ISIS supporters were also confined. The Kurds lost nearly 13,000 people in the fight against ISIS, while the U.S. lost six. On our promise that we would be there for them, they did most of the fighting and dying, and now they're being slaughtered in attacks from Turkey that include a host of war crimes because the U.S. under Donald Trump broke its promise, walked away, retreated, cut and run, and left our friends and their children to be murdered and chased from their homes. A quarter million Kurds, including 70,000 children, have been forced to flee those homes because of Trump's retreat. On the news that Trump had begun to pull U.S. troops out of Syria, dire predictions were made. They have since come true, and then some. And when the president was warned by advisors, military and civilian, against such a move, he chose to double down instead. Trump ordered nearly all U.S. troops to start packing, and Turkey unleashed a merciless attack, including chemical weapons on our allies, the Kurds. Okay, former allies, the Kurds. Some threw potatoes at the vehicles carrying U.S. troops out of Syria and into Iraq, which, by the way, says U.S. troops are not welcome and won't be allowed to stay, as the U.S. had hoped to continue its fight against ISIS. The Kurds have now stopped fighting ISIS on our behalf, focusing instead on fleeing the bombs and defending themselves from annihilation by Turkey. During Turkey's Trump-invited invasion of Syria, a Turkish bomb damaged one of the prisons the Kurds had abandoned for their own safety, and hundreds of ISIS fighters escaped, including some that the U.S. considered high-value detainees. Likewise, hundreds of ISIS supporters are also now free, thanks to the chaos in northern Syria, all apparently because of a phone call between Trump and Turkey's President Recep Erdogan. Hundreds of other ISIS members have come out of hiding across Syria, many of them vowing revenge on the United States. The U.S. itself is now in greater danger of an ISIS attack thanks to Trump's retreat. Trump says any ISIS escapees are now Turkey's responsibility and that the U.S. would simply never let them come here. It was Trump who in 2016 blamed Obama for creating a vacuum in Iraq, quoting from then, the way they got out was a disaster and ISIS was formed. Pot, meat kettle. Now Trump says the Turks and Kurds should be left to fight it out. Sometimes you have to do that, said Trump. ISIS, meanwhile, has already reactivated in Syria, and Russian troops now control what, until just days ago, were American military bases. And there's that word Russian again. Turkey's Erdogan met face-to-face -face this week with Russia's Vladimir Putin, and in that meeting, they divvied up the land of the Kurds that the U.S. had suddenly made available. Putin didn't hesitate a moment now that he'd had a chance to give Russia something it could not have gained without Trump's retreat, a foothold in the Middle East. 
And Trump didn't hesitate a moment to lift the sanctions he had placed on Turkey just last week. And then there are the 50 nuclear weapons we left behind in Turkey. About 50 tactical nukes the U.S. stored in Turkey at an airbase about 250 miles from the Syrian border. Those weapons are now essentially hostages in the hands of Erdogan, who has long wanted nukes of his own. A country that's been firing at U.S. troops has been left in possible control of 50 U.S. nuclear weapons thanks to Trump's rapid retreat. What could possibly go wrong? Betrayed by the United States, the Kurds found a new ally in Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, a close ally of Russia. You may remember Assad from that whole gassing his own people with Russian and Iranian help thing four years ago. That our former allies, the Kurds, would now align themselves with Syria's Assad regime is deeply disturbing to say the least. Their alliance with the U.S. has ended, so Russia and Iran can now advance at will. Russia has now filled the void left by the U.S., the Russian military saying it will now separate the Turks and the Kurds and that it will do a better job of it than the U.S. In the words of one Kurdish woman forced to flee her home because of the Turkish invasion, the Americans betrayed us. We don't trust them anymore. They trusted us, says an American Green Beret who fought alongside the Kurds last year, facing off against columns of Syrian government tanks with Russian mercenaries at the wheel. They trusted us and we broke that trust, says the army officer. It's a stain, he said, on our American conscience. I'm ashamed, said another officer to the New York Times. This will go down as a stain on the American reputation for decades, an army officer told the Washington Post. As a retired four-star general put it to CNN, there is blood on Trump's hands for abandoning our Kurdish allies. I said there would be blood, but could not have imagined this outcome, says retired Army General John Allen. Another four-star general called Trump's retreat morally indefensible and a disgrace. A former CIA director, General David Petraeus, called it the betrayal of an ally. It's a dagger to the heart to walk away from people who shed blood for us, said a former top CIA official. Ask the Kurds if they think the world is a safer place now that Trump has effectively released hundreds and hundreds of ISIS, told the world that we don't keep our promises to back our friends and allowed Russia and Iran to have their ways in Syria. Easier still, ask an American soldier. This is not America. Turkey has already overtaken well over 100 square miles of Syria and continues to advance, and Turkey did so even before U.S. troops could get out of harm's way. Turkey bombed a key highway American troops needed to get themselves and their equipment safely out of Syria and into Iraq. They launched artillery rounds near a U.S. special ops outpost on both sides of that facility as if to put a bracket around our troops. U.S. military officials say Turkey intentionally fired at U.S. soldiers that it knew what it was doing, apparently to push the U.S. even further into retreat. One Republican called Trump's withdrawal as a sign of weakness, the president inviting Erdogan to the White House one day and threatening to totally destroy Turkey's economy the next. Trump now says in the wake of all this fighting and bloodshed, he's imposing economic sanctions on Turkey, and he called for a ceasefire in the fighting he caused. He sent Mike Pence to Turkey to try to get Erdogan to back off. Pence came away declaring a pause in the fighting to give the Kurds time to escape their homes 
instead of being killed in them. There was no pause. There was no ceasefire. All while Trump was publicly arguing that whatever happens in the Mideast now isn't our problem. But with even his Republicans angry about what he's done, it remains his problem politically here at home. Trump is more focused on protecting oil than he is on protecting our allies, and he has no intention of stopping the endless wars, as he calls them. This week, we learned that the U.S. is leaving hundreds of troops in Syria to defend oil fields, while hundreds more have retreated into Iraq instead of coming home, as the president had promised. The American troops will instead remain in Iraq to continue the fight against ISIS until Iraq won't have them anymore. None of the troops are coming home in spite of Trump's retreat and in spite of his promises. They're bugging out of Syria to make way for Iran, Turkey, Russia, and ISIS. Meanwhile, Russian warplanes have been bombing hospitals in Syria, and the New York Times has proven it in photos and with a recording from the Russian Air Force radios, along with plane spotter logs and eyewitnesses. For some time now, Russia's been accused of repeated attacks on hospitals and clinics in parts of Syria that are home to the resistance to the Assad government. Russia has consistently denied it, but Physicians for Human Rights says Russia's warplanes have conducted nearly 600 hospital attacks in the past eight years, killing nearly 1,000 medical workers. As a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council, Russia has avoided being called out for these bombings, but this new thorough evidence from the New York Times will make Russia's war crimes harder to ignore. And there's that word Russia again. Rex Tillerson was shocked two autumns ago when he was still Secretary of State to hear what his president wanted him to do. Trump wanted Tillerson to work with Rudy Giuliani to stop the U.S. government's prosecution of a Turkish-Iranian gold trader whose lawyer just happened to be Rudy Giuliani. It was to be Rex Tillerson's task to strike a diplomatic deal to stop the U.S. government's corruption case against gold trader Reza Zarab and maybe get a little something out of Turkey in trade, maybe get Turkey to release an American pastor it had jailed. Erdogan would like this, having begged Trump repeatedly to drop the gold trader case. Trump reportedly believes the gold trader has incriminating information on the Turkish leader. Tillerson was shocked at the president's scheme, according to reporting by the Washington Post, whose sources include people working alongside Tillerson at the time. Trump asked this of Tillerson repeatedly in the Oval Office and on one occasion accompanied by Giuliani and another lawyer for the gold trader. Tillerson went to then Chief of Staff John Kelly, telling him that what Trump was asking was highly inappropriate. Kelly told Tillerson to forget about it according to the Washington Post. Tillerson pushed back and stopped taking Giuliani's calls. It was, however, another instance in which Trump meddled in law enforcement and bypassed standard government procedures by letting Giuliani tinker with America's foreign policy instead of the career professionals and instead of the people who hold the titles relevant to that foreign policy. Another abuse of power, another article of impeachment another reason for quick removal from office in the interest of U.S. national security. In other war news we weren't expecting, Trump is now sending nearly 2,000 American troops to Saudi Arabia to help its fight against Iran. 
one of the wealthiest nations on earth, led by a prince who had a Washington Post journalist killed, the Saudi government is getting military assistance from the U.S. It's fine, says Trump, emphasizing the Saudis have, quote, agreed to pay us for everything we're doing to help them. The U.S. military has become an army for hire. 14,000 U.S. troops and sailors have deployed in the Middle East just since spring. After his first meeting with Vladimir Putin in 2017, Trump told a reporter, foreign policy is what I'll be remembered for. He has no idea. The end of the government's fiscal year was approaching, which means money not yet spent gets lost. And that's what Pentagon officials were afraid might happen since they still hadn't seen the hundreds of millions of dollars Congress had authorized to help Ukraine fend off Russian aggression. The Pentagon put its lawyers on the case, ready to make the unprecedented move of taking on the Trump administration in court. We now know what happened to that money and why. It was held up by Trump as he tried to squeeze Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden. Once the whistleblower complaint was published, the money was finally released, but by then, Trump was certain Ukraine would play ball and publicly investigate Joe Biden. It is his money-laden pressure on a foreign government to involve itself in our 2020 election that launched the impeachment investigation of Donald Trump. Michael Duffy handles the national security money in the White House Office of Management and Budget, or OMB for short. Duffy was directly involved in approving the order to hold up that $391 million for Ukraine. We may or may not hear more from him in the impeachment hearings. Duffy was involved in discussions with the White House about whether this thing they were doing was legal. It isn't, they decided. Unlike his predecessors in that national security money job, Duffy is not a career professional. He's a political appointee. So is the acting director of the OMB who signed off on holding back that money. And the actual head of that office is acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. The White House isn't likely to let any of them, not Duffy, none of them testify. More obstruction based on a shaky claim of executive privilege. The career professionals at the State Department were as caught off guard and as alarmed as the experts at the Pentagon. At least four national security officials were so alarmed about the squeeze being put on Ukraine for political ends, they took their concerns to a White House lawyer. They went to that White House lawyer before Trump called Ukraine's president and again after that July 25th call. These national security officials had already been shaken by the removal of the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. They were deeply disturbed to see Rudy Giuliani, instead of career professionals like Ms. Yovanovitch, handling our foreign policy. That's why they went to the White House lawyer. The lawyer promised them he'd follow up and take it up the chain of command. That was the last they'd heard of their complaint. The lawyer's boss, top White House lawyer Pat Ciplione, wrote House Speaker Nancy Pelosi last week to call the impeachment probe unconstitutional. That was the same letter that declared the White House won't cooperate with the probe. Going to that White House lawyer didn't help. And that may have been what prompted the whistleblower to file a formal complaint through channels. That complaint and the rough transcript of the phone call it's about are all Democrats say they need to impeach this president. Many of us wondered what the aforementioned Marie Ivanovich might have to say, this career professional fired to make way for Giuliani. 
she had been ordered by the White House not to testify, even though she didn't work for the government anymore. Still, she testified. She defied that order and obeyed her subpoena to appear before Congress behind closed doors. But Ms. Yovanovitch also released a public statement to mirror what she would be telling the impeachment committees. She said she'd been removed from her post based on, quote, unfounded and false claims by people with clearly questionable motives. She connected the dots for lawmakers by pointing to the two Giuliani associates who'd just been arrested. More about them shortly. But Yovanovitch said of the two men, they, quote, believed their personal financial ambitions were stymied by our anti-corruption policy in Ukraine. They needed Marie Yovanovitch out of the way. Congress then heard from Trump's ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, one of the Trump men who called themselves the Three Amigos as they worked together to enforce Rudy Giuliani's Ukraine goals. It isn't yet clear why these three were chosen as Trump's point men, but it's become clear that Trump was pulling the strings. There is an increasingly clear trail in this scandal that leads directly to Donald Trump, just as Watergate led directly to Richard Nixon. Sondland, who had long wanted to be an ambassador and who donated generously to Trump's 2016 campaign, is the man who texted William Taylor, our special envoy in Ukraine, that there was no quid pro quo in the president's insistence that Ukraine investigate Biden while the money for Ukraine was being held up. Under a subpoena, Sondland headed up the hill to talk to Congress. He admitted that he got that quid pro quo line from Trump himself in a phone call just before answering the envoy's text, asking if we really were trading military aid for political help. Sondland told lawmakers he did not know if the president was telling the truth about that quid pro quo claim, but he said, quote, as I recall, he was in a bad mood. Sondland told the impeachment investigators that for months now he's worked at the direction of Rudy Giuliani who was working at the direction of Donald Trump. Sondland said it was Giuliani who told him to get a public statement out from Ukraine's president about its investigation of a Ukrainian natural gas company if that new president wanted a coveted White House meeting with the American president. More quid and more quo for those keeping score. But Sondland testified that he and the other diplomats did not know that that gas company investigation was really about Joe Biden He said the excitement with which he entered government was soon replaced by concern about the pressure being put on Ukraine. Sondland was in CYA mode. Sondland, who donated a million dollars to the Trump inaugural committee and prides himself on his friendship with Trump, seemed ready to give testimony that would, like the testimony of Marie Ivanovich, be damaging to this president. He says he and two other men were taking their orders from Rudy Giuliani as they went around official diplomatic channels to pressure Ukraine for dirt on the Bidens and the Democrats. After some daringly faithful service to the president, Sondland, in his testimony, was trying to exonerate himself and throw Trump and Giuliani under the bus, all while four of lawyer Giuliani's associates were being arrested. Gordon Sondland was one of the three amigos doing Trump's bidding on Ukraine, bypassing the career diplomats, according to testimony by Deputy Assistant Secretary of State George Kent. The other two amigos, said Kent, were Ukraine envoy Kurt Volker, who's already testified, and Energy Secretary Rick Perry, who says he's resigning soon. Rick Perry has been subpoenaed, but it appears the White House will order him not to testify, which Maybe why he hasn't resigned yet.
In fact, he hasn't set an exact date at all. On the other hand, George Kent's seven hours of testimony for impeachment investigators detailed how Trump and Giuliani pushed career professionals aside to make way for a political crusade to pressure Ukraine for dirt on Joe Biden and the Democrats and to exonerate himself and Russia from the 2016 election interference. Kent said he was instructed to lay low on Ukraine while Rudy and his pals handled things. Kent told Congress that Giuliani's efforts were undermining more than a quarter century of U.S. policy on the rule of law in Ukraine, and he called it wrong. He called out the conspiracy theories being pursued by the president through Rudy Giuliani and others as a disinformation campaign. Add George Kent to the growing list of career diplomats speaking truth to power despite orders from the State Department and the White House not to testify. And something in Kent's testimony made lawmakers also want to hear from former National Security Advisor John Bolton. You'll also hear more about him in a moment. Simultaneously, Michael McKinley, career diplomat and senior advisor to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, resigned in protest of Pompeo's failure to support career folk like him who find themselves now caught up in this criminal political scheme. For him, the firing of Marie Yovanovitch was the last straw. But he says the use of ambassadors to, quote, advance a political objective was every bit as disturbing. McKinley has now also testified for Congress behind closed doors in hearings in which Republicans are present and Republicans and their staff are given equal time to ask questions despite Republican claims to the contrary. For better or worse, this is the kind of thing that slows the impeachment process that one witness leads to another. Congress will also want to speak with Deputy Secretary of State John Sullivan, who told Marie Yovanovitch she had done nothing wrong, but that for a year the president had been pressuring the State Department to get rid of her. Two months before being fired, Yovanovitch was told she could stay through 2020. Suddenly she was out. Congress wants to know why. She told them it was at the behest of Rudy Giuliani, and Giuliani has admitted that publicly. With more than three decades' experience in our foreign service, Yovanovitch, in her testimony, told lawmakers the State Department is being hollowed out from within and that Congress needs to act now to defend that institution. I fear that not doing so, she said, will harm our nation's interests, perhaps permanently. She said bad actors from around the world would now see how easy it is to use lies to manipulate the system. The only interests that will be served, she warned, are those of our strategic adversaries like Russia. During her long day of testimony, Ms. Jovanovich needed a break to compose herself after an emotional telling of this tale of presidential abuse of power. There is no denying her bravery in coming forward in defiance of the White House, proudly walking into the Capitol Dome in broad daylight instead of zipping from a limousine to the doors and for releasing a public statement to relay to all of us the message she carried to those lawmakers. Like other important witnesses in an impeachment, Marie Yovanovitch stood up for what's right. So did Fiona Hill. The lawmakers heard from then-former presidential advisor on Russia, Fiona Hill, and they heard an earful. Like Yovanovitch, Hill endured nearly 10 hours of questions, but she volunteered some real bombshells. She revealed that Trump's European Union ambassador, Gordon Sondland, had been weirdly assigned to also handle Ukraine, which isn't in the EU. 
Ms. Hill said Sondland was working with Giuliani in the pressuring of Ukraine for political help. She called Sondland a potential national security risk. She says that in a meeting July 10th that also involved the also-subpoenaed Energy Secretary Rick Perry, Sondland revealed there was an agreement with White House Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney that the new Ukrainian president would get his coveted invitation to the White House if he publicly opened that investigation into Biden and other Democrats. So Mulvaney is in this deeply. It was Mick Mulvaney who had brought together the three amigos and who'd ordered his budget office to withhold the Ukraine money and who withheld that White House meeting with Ukraine's president. Mulvaney is in this deeply. Fiona Hill told of a blow-up in that July 10th meeting between former National Security Advisor John Bolton and Sondland. She said Bolton was furious. Ms. Hill says that after the blow-up, Bolton spoke metaphorically, saying, I'm not part of whatever drug deal Sondland and Mulvaney are cooking up, and he called Rudy Giuliani a hand grenade who would, quote, blow everybody up. He says Bolton had sounded the alarm about Giuliani and company before on multiple occasions. Bolton has now joined the ranks of the whistleblower and those four unnerved national security officials in sounding an alarm about what Trump and Giuliani were up to. For whatever you may think of his politics and his policies, John Bolton is a Yale-educated attorney, and Ms. Hill says he instructed her to report what she had just witnessed to the White House lawyers. And now, Bolton plans to write a book about it, using the same co-author James Comey had used for his bestseller. Congress will likely subpoena John Bolton, too, and he will likely be a very cooperative witness. It has been the career professionals, from the anonymous whistleblower to the diplomats who've come forward to call out crimes by this president. Trump's deep state is fighting back. What is unfolding before us is a clash between two sets of U.S. foreign policy, the one crafted by career professionals in the best interest of the U.S. over decades and the one crafted by Trump, Sondland, and Giuliani in the best interest of the Trump 2020 campaign. It is the career professionals, our nonpartisan diplomats, who have, against White House orders, come forward to expose Trump's impeachable crimes, including Ukraine. And then on Tuesday of this week, we got the most powerful testimony so far from the most credible witness so far who spelled out clearly that the president was lying about the quid pro quo, even if he had stopped lying about what he had actually done. On Tuesday, three floors below the chamber of the U.S. House of Representatives, Republicans and Democrats alike heard the most damaging testimony yet in the impeachment of Donald Trump. The most powerful testimony we've heard, said Democratic Congressman Stephen Lynch of Massachusetts. He's a member of the House Oversight Committee, one of the three committees conducting these closed-door impeachment hearings. Republicans are also present to listen. Their chance to speak comes in the public hearings, likely to begin very soon. But now, House Republicans have also heard this damaging and extremely credible testimony. This testimony may eliminate the need for calling few, if any, more witnesses because, quoting a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, it certainly filled in many of the remaining gaps in the narrative. This witness, unlike this president, is unimpeachable. It is impossible to, with a straight face, 
call this witness a Democrat. Unless you're Trump, who has called this veteran and dedicated public servant human scum and a radical unelected bureaucrat, even though Taylor was hired and appointed by the Trump administration. No one from the White House has denied any of what William Taylor said, just that he's a radical unelected bureaucrat, like that's a bad thing. What we have learned in these past two weeks, it isn't. It's a good thing. William Taylor is our top American diplomat in Ukraine, a Vietnam vet, Army. As a West Point graduate, he has served this nation for 50 years, including presidents from both parties. He was assigned to Ukraine 13 years ago by President George W. Bush. Taylor told Bush Ukraine was special to him. William Taylor has stood near those battlefields where the Kurds have fought, not only ISIS, but the troops being led by Russia. Like other professionals who were cut out of Trump's Ukraine dealings, Taylor says he and other U.S. officials were alarmed by an alternate foreign policy led by Giuliani that put Ukrainian lives at risk for the president's political gain. Taylor testified there was a quid and a quo, an Oval Office visit politically important to Ukraine's newly elected president and the held-up $400 million in exchange for a publicly announced Ukrainian investigation into both Joe Biden and possible Ukrainian interference in the 2016 U.S. election. And Taylor tied it all directly to Trump. Quoting Taylor's written statement, President Trump did insist that President Zelensky go to a microphone and say he is opening investigations of Biden and the 2016 election interference and that President Zelensky should, quote, want to do this himself. In fact, Mr. Taylor says he was told by Gordon Sondland that Ukraine had to pay up before the president would sign a check. Those are quotes. Taylor says John Bolton spoke up, but Secretary of State Mike Pompeo did not respond. Taylor says he spoke up as well. That is confirmed by the text messages revealed last week in which Taylor said withholding military aid for political gain is crazy. Better than that, Taylor is a government professional who documents every conversation right after it occurs, and he brought with him to Congress those notes, very meticulous notes with quotes and dates. His opening statement was made public, and it gave lawmakers most everything they need for impeachment. Those notes include him telling Ambassador Kurt Volker, one of the three amigos, that without U.S. help, that without that money, Ukrainians would die at the hands of soldiers led by Russia. Yeah, Russia again. Or still. But thanks to the all-encompassing 10-hour testimony of the unbiased William Taylor, we have more than a quid pro quo. We have the smoking gun. And thanks to the impeachment hearings, Republicans have now heard it too. They don't like what they're hearing, and they have no defense for it. All they have is an offense to attack the process as unfair and partisan and all the things that Bill Taylor's testimony was not. In protest of the closed-door hearings, especially the one with Taylor, about two dozen Republican House members who were not part of the Intelligence Committee stormed a different hearing the following day, yesterday. They burst in through three different doors simultaneously, yelling and screaming about the secrecy. The invasion came one day after Trump urged congressional Republicans to get tougher in defending him. But this display was beyond comprehension. 
Men whose job it is to make our laws were breaking the law. Unauthorized entry into a secure room reserved for handling classified material and bringing with them their phones as recording devices, which are absolutely forbidden in a skiff, which is short for Sensitive Compartmented Information Facility. These two dozen House Republicans were risking national security by bringing recording devices into that room. They also brought pizzas and some Chick-fil-A to keep their energy up during the standoff. One of the marauding Republicans shouted directly at committee chairman Adam Schiff in his face. Schiff did not engage. Some Democrats on the panel, however, did engage. It got ugly. It could get uglier. Democrats considered bringing in the U.S. Capitol Police to physically remove the lawmakers, half of whom did not have security clearance to be in that hearing room. After consulting with the sergeant-at-arms, Democrats decided to instead leave the room themselves until the marauding Republicans finally got bored and left. Democrats decided the best revenge was to let that visual stand of these rule-breaking, security-violating Republicans staging what looked like a high school student protest. So there was a five-hour delay in the start of the testimony by Deputy Assistant Defense Secretary Laura Cooper, who got up and left right after being seated at 10 a.m. She left after it became obvious that Republican lawmakers would not be leaving anytime soon. Having no defense for their president, Republican lawmakers physically halted for a while an impeachment hearing, but only for a while. The impeachment continues, and it could get uglier. We have since learned that Trump knew in advance about the Republican plan to barge into that closed-door hearing, having met with those same lawmakers about this the day before. And we have also learned that this stunt that mocked both national security and our Constitution had been planned by this group of Republican lawmakers nearly a week ago. Because they have no defense, only noise and distraction. The public impeachment hearings begin in about three weeks. And now the president's personal lawyer and apparent unofficial Ukrainian envoy is himself under criminal investigation. Federal prosecutors in Manhattan are looking at Giuliani's business activities in Ukraine and his role in undermining Ambassador Yovanovitch and bypassing the usual diplomatic channels. Giuliani is also now the target of a counterintelligence investigation conducted by the FBI and by prosecutors in the Southern District of New York, the same office Giuliani once headed as a U.S. attorney. Giuliani's been subpoenaed by the impeachment committees. News of the Fed's Giuliani investigation came just days after two of his business associates were arrested as they prepared to board one-way flights out of the U.S. And the Fed say those arrests and the investigation of Giuliani are related. These first two men, Americans born in what was then the Soviet Union, have been charged with federal felonies, alleged campaign finance violations in funneling $20,000 in illegal foreign donations to a U.S. congressman they believed would help them get rid of Marie Yovanovitch. That congressman, Texas Republican Pete Sessions, subsequently failed to get reelected and says he knows nothing about the scheme. But Sessions is identified as Congressman 1 in the indictments of Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman. And Sessions has now been subpoenaed by the federal grand jury that's investigating Giuliani and his pals, and Sessions' congressional office says he is cooperating with that grand jury probe. 
Lev and Igor together, who've now been also subpoenaed by Congress, have donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to Republican candidates, including Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's been photographed hugging the one named Igor. Both Lev and Igor have dates in federal court today. But this investigation is really about Giuliani, who admits that his associates worked with Ukrainian prosecutors to get damaging information on Yovanovitch and both Joe and Hunter Biden. But Giuliani says there was no wrongdoing. The feds apparently take a different view, out to fight foreign influence, which they consider as great a threat to the U.S. as the stealing of government secrets. With Giuliani scrutinized by the feds, Trump wasn't sure what to say at first when asked if Rudy was still his lawyer. I don't know. I haven't spoken to Rudy, said Trump. Avoiding the question, he continued, I spoke to him yesterday quickly. He's a very good attorney, and he has been my attorney. End quote. A ringing endorsement, if ever we'd heard one. Giuliani assured reporters that he is still the president's attorney. It wasn't until the next day that the president thought so, too. Trump called Rudy a great guy and a wonderful lawyer, even though he seems, quote, a little rough around the edges. Now, about Rudy's business associates, Igor Fruman and Lev Parnas, Trump says he doesn't know them, although a collage of photographs would indicate otherwise. They and Trump were three of just eight people in a meeting in 2018 to discuss what were then the upcoming midterm elections. And we know what they did to help Giuliani get an ambassador out of the way to help their business ventures. They helped me find people, says Giuliani, who was paid a half million dollars by them for work he did for a company owned by one of the men, arrested Lev Parnas. On the day they were arrested, Igor and Lev had lunch with Rudy at the Trump Hotel in Washington. That evening, they were headed from the Lufthansa lounge to their boarding gate when they were surrounded by about a dozen plainclothes federal agents and taken into custody for allegedly making illegal foreign campaign contributions. Since then, two more Giuliani associates have been arrested on the same charges. Ah, but this is just the tip of the iceberg, in the words of the chair of the Federal Elections Commission. Ellen Weintraub says there's a tremendous flow of dark money to U.S. politicians. Quoting her, there may well be a lot of money that is slipping into our system that we just don't know about. The Elections Commission has been paralyzed without a quorum at a crucial moment in American history. Weintraub, who was appointed by George W. Bush, is very concerned. And she says the voters should be, too. Voters should also be extremely concerned about what they're starting to see on social media, especially the memes, especially on Instagram. Once again, Russian trolls are pretending to be fellow citizens in your state or voting district, mostly to bash Biden and tout Trump. Facebook this week said it had removed several networks of phony accounts emanating from the Russian military's troll farm known as the Internet Research Agency, the same folks who inflamed the two sides of the U.S. political divide with propaganda and disinformation in 2016. Those trolls, now including some from Iran, are using the same methods only with more precision this time, targeting exactly the voters they want to influence with exactly the kinds of things those voters want to hear. The foreign trolls are posing as your neighbors, and they're trashing Joe Biden from the right and the left. They're bashing Biden to appeal to Bernie Sanders supporters. They're bashing Biden to appeal to Republican voters. The idea is to divide and conquer, and then to subdivide and conquer. 
The trolls' mission is to further divide the left and right, but also to divide the left against itself. And they've gotten better at it, refining the methods they used so successfully in 2016, only this time the target is Joe, not Hillary. Although the accounts deleted this week were just getting started, they had already picked up followings of close to a quarter million people. One Russian account pretending to be a black voter in Michigan used the Black Lives Matter hashtag to go after Biden for his gaffes. But it wasn't a black man in Michigan. It was a Russian. The trolls are claiming they live in swing states and they've put a special focus on Florida. This year's attack has so far mostly focused on Facebook's photo app, Instagram. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg says the trolling's gotten worse since 2016, with more countries seeing a lack of response to it by the U.S. government. Zuckerberg also continues to refuse to fact-check the president's tweets or to, like broadcasting, ban political ads that are untrue, and he took a verbal beating for that in a congressional hearing yesterday. Russia, meanwhile, has announced it's joining forces with the U.S. on the subject of cybersecurity. The hostile nation that continuously cyber attacks this country, most notably in the 2016 election, will be working closely with the U.S. on cybersecurity. The head of Russia's FSB, the Federal Security Bureau, told the Russian news agency TASS, and I quote, we are restoring these cybersecurity relations. Sleep tight. In other social media news, the attorneys general of 46 states have joined New York in its antitrust lawsuit against Facebook. The lawsuit could force major changes in the way Facebook operates. In the lawsuit, Facebook is accused of putting consumer data at risk, reducing the quality of their choices, and increasing the price of advertising. Remember the White House official who wrote an anonymous essay last year for the New York Times? He or she remains anonymous, but they have a whole book coming out next month. The publisher says the author won't make a dime and that royalties will go to nonprofit groups that work for government accountability and freedom of the press. The publisher says the author could have taken a seven-figure advance just to start writing the book. But the publisher says the author only wanted to perform a public service. The book, A Warning by Anonymous, goes on sale November 19th. The latest polls show that the impeachment inquiry has enough support now from the public that Democrats no longer need to worry about paying a price for conducting that inquiry when it comes time for the 2020 election. The latest polls show that more than half the country wants him removed from office and the polls show that more Republican voters are signing on as well. Now all House lawmakers have to do is figure out how many of Trump's deeds should go into the impeachment. The easy-to-understand Ukraine scandal is everything they need from a very basic legal standpoint. We have confirmed evidence the president pressured Ukraine for political help, which is constitutionally illegal. But as we all know, there is so much more including all the things that came before Ukraine, Syria, and the G7 scam. There is now evidence that Trump did privately ask China for dirt on Biden before he did so publicly, illegal under the Constitution. We just learned this week about Trump's use of then-Secretary of State Rex Tillerson to try to stop the prosecution of Giuliani's Turkish gold dealer. 
So many Democrats now want to go beyond Pelosi's plan to keep it simple, beyond what they see as the tip of the iceberg. Quoting Connecticut Congressman Jim Hines, we have an obligation to see how deep this sewage flows. Many Democrats see the need for a much stronger case, perhaps a totality of crimes that move public opinion more dramatically than it's moved already. But Pelosi and others believe Trump's other offenses can serve to underscore impeaching Trump on this one count of abuse of power, and those other offenses could muddy the basic charge. At last check, Pelosi was standing firm in her keep-it-simple plan, but also pushing the Ukraine investigation forward at lightning speed. Any article of impeachment must be something with which the public and even Republican senators can agree. So there is real practical value in that simplicity. So now Democrats are looking to enclose the increasingly complex Ukraine scandal under a single umbrella, abuse of power. There seem to be countless moving parts to this Ukraine scandal, abusing power to hurt the interest of the U.S. in favor of personal political gain is something that's much easier to wrap our heads around. As bad as the previous week had been politically for Trump, it was at least that good politically for Pelosi, who literally stood up to the president, pointed a finger at him, and said, as she recalls, all roads lead to Putin. A White House photographer took a photo for the history books. It was a 21st century Norman Rockwell painting in a photograph. Pelosi standing with her finger pointed at Trump as she lectured him after witnessing what she's described as a presidential meltdown, adding that we should all pray for him. Her version of events has since been substantiated by Republicans who were in the room at the time. They say Trump's behavior frightened them. Trump tweeted later that Pelosi's the one to pray for and that she's the one who melted down and that she's the one who's not quite right in the head. Like an insolent child, he was saying, it's not him, it's her. I'm rubber, she's glue. Trump posted the photo on Twitter to illustrate his point, he thought. It backfired. Pelosi wore that historic photo as a badge of courage, making it her cover photo on both Facebook and Twitter. It has, however, been a personally devastating week for Nancy Pelosi. While grieving the loss of her friend and colleague, Baltimore Congressman Elijah Cummings, Pelosi lost her brother, former Baltimore Mayor Thomas D'Alessandro III. It was the second loss in a week, likewise, for Baltimore. The son of Southern sharecroppers and Baptist preachers, Elijah Cummings grew up in Baltimore in the 50s and 60s watching Perry Mason on TV. That inspired him to become a lawyer and to defend the boys in his neighborhood being sent to reform school. He became a civil rights activist in time, taking hits from rocks and bottles as he worked to desegregate a neighborhood swimming pool. He was the lead defender of Hillary Clinton during the 2015 hearings on Benghazi. He was fiercely respected, even by his most vehement political enemies. Many of those enemies called Elijah Cummings their friend. He was a fierce warrior against Trump as he chaired the House Oversight Committee. Passing at age 68 from multiple health challenges, Cummings' last acts included signing impeachment subpoenas from his hospice bed. And although his amazing staff continues their work on impeachment, they do so without his leadership. And no one else in Congress seems quite qualified to replace Elijah Cummings. But... The impeachment process continues at what is, for Washington, 
tremendous speed. This week's hearing schedule, of course, comparatively light with memorials for the late Elijah Cummings. In front of a federal district judge last week, Congress won a battle to get the president's financial records from the accounting firm he employed, Mazars. The court rejected Trump's attempt to block congressional subpoenas for that data as lawmakers probe whether Trump lied about the values of his properties by either exaggerating their value while applying for loans and or underreporting their value when filling out property tax returns. Before he passed, Elijah Cummings called it a fundamental and resounding victory for our constitutional system of checks and balances and the rule of law. For far too long, said Cummings from his deathbed, the president has placed his personal interest over the interest of the American people. Those financial records won't be handed over just yet. Democrats have agreed not to enforce the subpoena until after Trump has appealed to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, where one of the three judges is Merrick Garland. Garland is the judge Republicans refuse to even consider to fill a Supreme Court vacancy in the final year of the Obama presidency. Karma. In a world without President Trump, this would have been a lead story which it was in 2016, unfortunately. It's about her emails. After a three-year investigation that reached back into records nine years old with dozens of witnesses, the State Department has concluded that Hillary Clinton and her employees did not deliberately mishandle any classified information in their use of her private email server. The importance of this story cannot be overstated. It was the revelation of an FBI investigation that, as much as any of the many other factors, kept Clinton out of the White House and gave us Donald Trump instead. It was that investigation that fueled the Trump campaign in the final days of the race. It also fueled Republicans and the conservative media starring Fox News. And tragically, it also fueled mainstream media. And three years later, here we are with a president who has been chronically reckless with classified information, who has continued to use an unsecured phone. After three years of investigating, the State Department says Clinton is exonerated. In fact, it found that very few of the emails were even directed at Clinton. Most were directed at her deputy secretary of state. But her emails, indeed. There is another possible scandal looming for Donald Trump. And Salon.com's Bob Seska is all over it. Thank you, Buzz. Dateline, Washington, D.C. There's a bit of conventional wisdom floating around this town, and for once I actually agree with it. The wisdom here might be legitimate, and it goes like this. Apparently, Americans have been too stupid to fully grasp all previous Trump scandals, at least in the context of why these scandals constitute impeachable high crimes and misdemeanors. But then Trump's quid pro quo with Ukraine materializes, and suddenly we're ready to handle an impeachment based on this particular crime. All others, though, had too many moving parts for us to process. I hasten to note here that I absolutely believe there are myriad other impeachable offenses that preceded Ukraine, and the president could easily have been impeached a thousand times over based on those other stories. However, I also agree that American voters are too distracted and misled to understand the details, leaving accountability for the president in the hands of people who need to read more news. 
Prior to Ukraine, those impeachable offenses included obstruction of justice, abuse of power, humanitarian atrocities at the border, money laundering, emoluments violations, tax evasion, fraud, traitorous acts, his defense of Nazis at Charlottesville, and I'd include Russia collusion in there too, even though Robert Mueller claimed it didn't rise to criminal conspiracy. For some reason, Americans weren't ready to embrace any of these charges as impeachable, and it's a bloody shame. Tyrants tend to prosper when the people are confused and misinformed. The people will have to forgive me then for adding another impeachment-worthy trespass onto the pile. I'm talking about growing evidence indicating that Trump has been deliberately blurting good and bad news about his trade war because he knows it moves the stock market and that he might be tipping off his friends or even his family when he's about to do it. I've been tweeting and writing about this for much of 2019, and I began to notice back in 2018 that whenever there was a colossal sell-off, traders almost always attributed their freakout to a Trump tweet or blurt. Likewise, whenever there's a significant single-day upswing, it often coincides with good news from Trump. Granted, sometimes presidential pronouncements can move the markets, but it might surprise you to discover that the five biggest one-day point declines in the history of the Dow Jones Industrial Average have all occurred since January 22, 2018, the day that Trump first declared his completely foolish and poorly managed tariffs against China and others. The biggest one-day drop in Dow history, 1,175 points, occurred just two weeks after the trade war began. While not as striking, six of the top 10 biggest one-day gains in Dow history happened since that date as well. Something hinky is going on here. Back in August, I wrote a piece for Salon in which I inadvertently buried the lead by mentioning my suspicions within a broader article about the impending recession. Then last week, William Cohen from Vanity Fair published a piece in which he began to connect the dots between gigantic stock purchases on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange that just happened to immediately precede a Trump blurt about tariffs. At least one of those trades were short sales, bets against the success of the markets that also served to further drive the stock price downward. In one trade, a mystery investor walked away with a $1.5 billion profit due to Trump moving the market with a comment about trade negotiations with China. In this case, Trump lied about his progress with the Chinese negotiators, and the S&P 500 jumped on the news. Thanks to Cohen's article, Congressional Action is now underway. On Monday, a group of Democratic senators fired off a letter to the Securities and Exchange Commission, Attorney General Barr, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, and FBI Director Chris Wray, demanding that the agencies immediately dig into these suspiciously timed trades. Quote, this is why reports of certain traders earning potential massive payoffs of more than $1 billion per trade ahead of actions taken by the Trump administration, foreign nations, or other entities are so troubling. They suggest that some may have an unfair trading advantage because of privileged access to non-public market-moving information, potentially from government sources, and, as a result, raise concerning questions about the integrity of our financial markets and our public institutions, unquote. Important step, we shouldn't expect Bill Barr to do a damn thing about this. The others are more likely to take a look, and as far as I'm concerned, they have no choice. An investigation has to discover how these traders were triggered 
and who profited the most. One of the reasons I'm so obsessed about this, by the way, is not simply because I was noticing the weirdness in real time for the better part of two years. I'm obsessed with this story because it's possible that the President of the United States is responsible for all this, and that means the steward of the economy is meddling in the financial markets in a way that impacts potentially millions of Americans, including American businesses. In the cases of the short sales, Trump's actions could be dragging down not just the individual stocks in question, but possibly entire indexes like the S&P. The last time reckless players were manipulating the markets through short sales and derivatives, the economy collapsed into the Great Recession, destroying millions of jobs and livelihoods, including mine. Is this a little personal? You're damn right it is, but it's also the principle of the thing Trump appears to be abusing his position to help his cronies win the stock market lottery, and it's happening a lot. Hell, he might even be profiting himself through family or other buffas. If investigators prove this theory, it's definitely another impeachment article or worse. And I frankly don't care whether the American people understand it. This is mandatory. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. This would have made another great lead story, were it not for the importance of the Trump impeachment story and the threat his presidency poses to our democracy. After three years of cutting and maiming by the Trump administration and a Republican Senate, Obamacare is alive and kicking. In fact, its condition has improved. New numbers show that the prices for the Affordable Care Act coverage are down again this year for the second year in a row and that more companies are now offering ACA policies. Obamacare prices are dropping by another 4% this year. The White House says Trump should get the credit for this, even though it was attacked by him and the Republicans that made health insurance companies so nervous they had raised their prices. Comprehensive but affordable health care remains a top issue among voters, and voters made that clear in electing a wave of Democratic lawmakers less than a year ago. Meanwhile, an analysis of the Democratic bill in the House to reduce the cost of prescription drugs shows that it would save Medicare $345 billion a year over 10 years. That's according to an analysis by the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. That law would allow the Health and Human Services Secretary to negotiate with drug companies for lower prices on 125 of the most expensive drugs. The House expects to pass the bill within the next week or so, but it will also require passage by the Senate and the signature of the President. As written, the provisions of the bill would go into effect in three years. It's been one court defeat after another for Trump this month, and that includes the cases concerning his immigration policy. Three federal judges in New York, California, and the state of Washington struck down Trump's plan to make green cards and visas more difficult to get for people who come here without health insurance or if there's a chance they'll need public assistance like Medicaid, food stamps, or housing vouchers. A federal judge in Texas, meanwhile, struck down Trump's plan to use more than $3.5 billion from the military to build his border wall. All of the cases Trump is losing are expected to be appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. But the Trump anti-immigration policy marches on. 
Monday, the administration released its plan to collect DNA samples from nearly every migrant who crosses into the U.S., including people not connected to serious crimes. Their DNA will be added to the FBI's CODIS, short for Combined DNA Index System. A system that has served as a tool for criminal investigations will now be used to keep tabs on the migrants who have no notable criminal history, if any. A DNA sample reveals personal information about that person and their relatives. And despite his faithful service to Trump's seemingly indefensible immigration policies, Kevin McAleenan is out as Trump's acting Homeland Security Secretary. McAleenan had nevertheless tried to defend those policies and actually did reduce border crossings for the boss, but Trump reportedly never really trusted McAleenan. McAleenan was brought in after Trump fired the one who had actually been confirmed by the Senate, Christian Nielsen. McAleenan will likely be replaced by another acting secretary, Ken Cuccinelli, who two months ago said the tired and poor poem on the Statue of Liberty was really talking about Europeans. Give me your tired and your poor who can stand on their own two feet and who will not become a public charge, said Cuccinelli as he tried to modify the statue's famous inscription. Cuccinelli would be Trump's fifth Homeland Security director in less than three years. Except for one thing. The White House personnel director this week told Trump that Ken Cuccinelli is not eligible for the job of Homeland Security Secretary because he had not served for at least 90 days under the last Senate-confirmed Secretary, Christian Nielsen. Trump's second choice is Customs and Border Protection Chief Mark Morgan, and he's not eligible for the same reason. The various immigration agencies under the Homeland Security umbrella are also run by acting directors who have not been confirmed by the Senate as they are supposed to be. Your phone is trying to kill you. Florida Stories and America's Scariest Haunted House in the final segment after this. Again, thank you so much for listening and for supporting my work. As I've said before, this newscast is free to you, but not free to make. If you'd like to contribute to this effort, please click on the PayPal Donate button in the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone just below the title Buzzburbank News and Comment. And there's still a little Amazon button on my page. If you're shopping Amazon anyway, please go through that page and bookmark it. That still helps. Thank you so much to those of you who actively support this independent news. The United Auto Workers have reached a deal with General Motors to end a strike by 50,000 employees, the company's longest strike in 50 years. The four-year deal now awaits ratification by union members who get 3 and 4% raises in lump sums, plus a signing bonus of $8,000 and a path to permanent employment for its temporary workers. Chicago teachers, meanwhile, went on strike last week, pushing 300,000 kids out of the classrooms. 25,000 Windy City teachers have walked out in a fight for more resources for students and more nurses, counselors, and social workers. That strike in the nation's third largest school district is now in its sixth day. What would have been the biggest and most dramatic trial blaming drug companies for the opioid crisis didn't happen this week as expected. On Monday, lawyers from four drug companies cried uncle and settled out of court 2,000 lawsuits that had been consolidated into one. The drug companies include McKesson and Cardinal Health. The two Ohio counties cover Cleveland and Akron. 
one of the original defendants, Johnson & Johnson, had already settled out of court with these two Ohio counties for well over $20 million. There have yet to be trials or settlements for Walgreens, CVS, Walmart, and Winn-Dixie. Those counties and others want back the money they've spent on health care and law enforcement to deal with the opioids these companies promoted as harmless. Trouble continues for Johnson & Johnson, though. J&J stock dropped by more than 6% this week after the once-trusted company recalled baby powder that's tainted with asbestos. Johnson & Johnson has already faced thousands of lawsuits claiming its powders cause ovarian cancer. By Friday, J&J stock had dropped by well over eight points. And this may give you heartburn. Zantac over-the-counter has been recalled a month after the Food and Drug Administration said it contains a small amount of a carcinogen. Get your shots now. It seems likely the flu season will start early this year. If Australia is any indication, and frequently it is, this season in the U.S. will start early. So far, it appears the right vaccines are available for the strains of flu that will be going around this winter, unless we get our shots now. Your smartphone is trying to kill you. Actually, it's really just the way we're holding them. Too many of us are doing the cell phone slouch. A Florida healthcare provider is warning that slouching to read your cell phone can not only ruin your posture, that bad posture can jam up your digestion and blood circulation. Cell phone slouch can lead to chronic pain in the back, neck, and knees. In time, we walk around with our shoulders rounded, our head and neck down, and shuffle along in shorter steps. Doctors say the same is true for reading a book, working at a desk, or even lounging on the couch if we don't pay attention to our posture. Not counting the 1958 horror movie starring Steve McQueen, the public first heard about The Blob in 1973 after a Texas woman found one, a big one, in her backyard. It looked like something from outer space, and it grew rapidly. And although it got a lot of media attention at the time, its fame was short-lived because the blob died shortly after its discovery. We know that it's a bright yellow, slimy kind of mold, and we now know a lot more about it thanks to research done in 2016. We know that it can move at speeds of up to an inch and a half per hour and that it's spooky smart. It can learn to ignore noxious substances and remember that substance for up to a year afterward. It can solve problems like finding its way out of a maze and anticipating changes in its environment. Anticipating. It can split itself in two and either go to separate ways or fuse itself back together. It isn't a plant. It isn't an animal. It isn't a fungus. It isn't male or female. It has 720 sexes. It's most commonly found on the forest floors of Europe in high humidity and moderate temperatures. The latest blob is on display right now at the Paris Zoological Park, perhaps again for a limited time only. This year's Nobel Prize for Science went to two Americans and a Japanese man for their work in developing lithium-ion batteries. The United States Army has signed a deal with a punk rocker to help it use material from UFOs to improve the Army's ground vehicles. 
Blink-182 member Tom DeLong is the founder of the To The Stars Academy of Arts and Sciences, and he says the Academy can help the Army in, quote, material science, space-time metric engineering, quantum physics, beamed energy propulsion, and active camouflage. The Academy has just signed a 26-page, five-year contract with the Army's Combat Capabilities Development Command. The contract suggests that if the Academy has remnants of crashed or captured UFOs, the Defense Department is eager to study their composition. I know, right? Christina Koch and Jessica Meir this week conducted the first all-female spacewalk outside the International Space Station. They were out there for more than seven hours, replacing a broken power controller and some general maintenance. They later got a call from the president, who promptly congratulated them on being the first women to walk in space. When they corrected him to say that several women had paved the way before them, he brushed back his hair with a single finger his middle finger. A Dallas TV station is apologizing for not cutting away from a Cowboys versus Eagles game to broadcast a tornado warning. There were several tornadoes in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex that evening, but KDFW, the NBC affiliate on Channel 5 there, delayed broadcasting the tornado warning. And speaking of sports, the Washington Nationals are in this year's World Series, the first D.C. team to make that series in 86 years. The Nats lead the Houston Astros in the series two games to none in this best of seven, game three tomorrow night. A 56-year-old Maryland man has set the record, meanwhile, for a wheelie. Bicyclist Rich Flanagan maintained his wheelie for more than 50 miles for four hours and 10 minutes until a wind knocked him down. He says he was going for a 100-mile wheelie. It was just last Friday that Shepard Smith, the most articulate critic of Trump on the Fox News channel, finished his final broadcast for a while. He resigned under pressure. Smith was number one in his time slot compared to CNN and MSNBC. A no-compete clause will keep him off other cable channels and perhaps off TV completely for a while. Former Trump aides Hope Hicks and Sarah Sanders, meanwhile, were hired by Fox last week, and Attorney General William Barr met privately with Fox News owner Rupert Murdoch. Quoting Shep Smith, Even in our currently polarized nation, it is my hope that the facts will win the day, that the truth will always matter, and that journalism and journalists will thrive. We have lost two more wonderful actors. Bill Macy, who played Walter Findlay on the All in the Family spinoff Maud, has died at age 97. And we lost Robert Forster. When you saw him, you knew him. He played bail bondsman Max Cherry, who fell in love with Pam Greer's detective character Jackie Brown in the 1990s Quentin Tarantino film. That role got him nominated for a Best Supporting Actor Oscar. He was the sheriff in the 2017 revival of Twin Peaks on Breaking Bad, He was Ed the Disappearer. Robert Forster was 78. Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, knocked Joker out of the top spot in theaters this week, opening with a soft $36 million in ticket sales, far less than the first Maleficent movie and far less than the producer had expected. Joker, however, has a strong hold on second place. Out for three weeks now, Joker may break the worldwide box office record with a projected gross of $900 million. For times and tickets, please click on the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com.
In other showbiz news, the owners of Charlie Brown are suing Dolly Parton's Tennessee theme park Dollywood for using without permission the song Christmas Time is Here, which was written for the 1965 classic TV special A Charlie Brown Christmas. But right now, Halloween is coming, and so are the great pumpkins. Leonardo Urena of Napa, California, has just won that state's annual pumpkin weigh-off, his tall, blonde pumpkin weighing in at 2,175 pounds. He says he's been growing them big for nearly 20 years by talking to them. Not to be outdone, the greatest great pumpkin in New England weighed in at 2,295 pounds and makes the Leonardo's California pumpkin look small. Alex Knowles' pumpkin in the Northeast weighs more than a Mitsubishi Eclipse. But the greatest pumpkin of them all was grown three years ago in Belgium at 2,625 pounds. Not scary enough? A family in Bagley, Iowa, has fled their home after their basement began to fill up with blood. Actually, it's a mixture of animal blood, fat, and tissue that came up through the floor drain after something went haywire at the nearby meat locker. The Lestina family has moved in with a relative while the meat packer pumps the blood out of their basement. And then there is the haunted house attraction in Summertown, Tennessee, McCamey Manor, billed as America's scariest haunted house. Admission is just a bag of food for the owner's five dogs, and there's a $20,000 prize to anyone who can make it all the way through the house. But no one has ever won it. To get in, you have to complete a sports physical, provide proof of medical insurance, and pass a drug test. You must also be at least 21 to sign the 40-page legal waiver. Each visitor must watch a two-hour video called And Then There Were None, which features footage of every visitor over the past two years quitting before completing the tour. Russ McCamey, who owns and operates the attraction, says he hypnotizes visitors into seeing whatever he wants them to see. At the intersection of Winston and Salem in Thomasville, North Carolina this week, a parent had just dropped off their child at school when they struck a utility pole. The pole went crashing through the back passenger window. No one was injured. Police are not clear on how the accident happened, but the crash left hundreds of homes without power for a while. And a driver in New York State is going to need two new backseat windows after a deer crashed in through one of them and then out the other while the man was driving his Kia Optima at 55 miles an hour. Afterward, he found broken glass and fur, but not a drop of blood. And from the home office in Florida, a 24-year-old Cape Coral man is accused of using a forklift and a hammer to vandalize the inside of a plumbing company. While he was there, he also took a shower. He was discovered by an employee who found the man naked and clutching a hammer. And a Palm City, Florida man has been arrested for unlawfully taking an alligator. As it struggled to bite his arm, the man forced the small gator to drink beer. And that brings us to our highway spill of the week. It was in Salt Lake City, Utah, that the road was littered with cans of beer that had tumbled out of a delivery truck and into the parking lot of a Mormon church. 
The beer was safely recovered partly thanks to the ban on alcohol in the Mormon religion. And finally, back to Florida, naturally. In Dade City, Florida, a man has been ordered to stop calling 911 to report that his roommate had stolen his marijuana. Recreational marijuana remains illegal in Florida, but police say they will not file charges against the young man so long as he stops calling 911 to report that his roommate stole his weed. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and your support to the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.